Welcome to the Cooperative Bank Podcasts. Today's guest on the Cooperative Bank's podcast has an impressive history of helping people. Heading the UK emergency evacuation programmes for Bosnia and Kosovo were some of her many accomplishments, as well as chairing the Asylum Rights Campaign during the passage of new asylum and immigration legislation. In 2000, she was appointed the UK Director of Amnesty International, with more than 650,000 members, supporters and activists. And so it gives me great pleasure in welcoming Kate Allen to the Cooperative Bank. Hello. Hello. Very nice to be here. Kate, um, undoubtedly you have a very impressive list of credentials to your name, but can I start off by finding out what you think of yourself? What three words sum up the real Kate Allen? Oh, three words. Um, I think that I'm absolutely an activist, so activism would absolutely be one of those words. Compassion uh, would be another and probably quite a dollop of impatience. Why do you see yourself as being impatient? I think I always want to get more done. You, you talked about how the world is uh, a difficult place. Um, so that wanting to be moving things faster and quicker, I, you know, just that sense of there is so much to be done in the world. As you say, you're a fighter, you're an activist. But what were you like at school? I was also probably in you know, complete pain as a stroppy kid. So, yes, I argued with my teachers. I went to a um, Catholic primary school and secondary school. I was I'm part of a, an Irish family growing up in the UK. My mother, who is, I think, probably the most inspirational person that I have had in my life, who was very questioning of authority, and so, so was I, and questioning of injustice wherever I saw it. At school, I would argue with the nuns. I wasn't a, it wasn't a time when that was really tolerated, uh, so I think I probably was perceived as, as a bit of a stroppy person, <laughs> a stroppy kid. What, uh, what were your first memories of your, of your mother and, and how she interacted with you? My, my mum came from a, a large Irish family where there had been... You know, where there was, you know they, they came from a really poor background. My grandparents didn't have running water or electricity. They had eight children, very little money. Um, and practically everybody, all of the children of my mother's uh, generation, uh, left Ireland to... Um, no, not all of them, but, but most of them left uh, because there were so little opportunities for that generation. Um, so ended up in the UK, in the US... Uh, so a, a typical Irish migrant story. So I do, I do feel, you know, the child of a migrant and of somebody who you know, didn't have many educational opportunities and was absolutely determined to have the, you know, to make sure her kids did. So there was a real fierceness about that. I mean, in a beautiful way. And you know, she had this amazing sense of justice and you know what was fair and right in the world. Um, and I think her children inherited that. I was actually going to ask you, you know, how formative were your teen years to becoming the woman you are now? And that, that seems to be quite indicative, isn't it? Yes, yes. So I remember going on my first demonstration when I was about 16, and that was um, the anti-apartheid issues. I think coming from an Irish family, I think, kind of gave you a kind of sense of, you know, more of a sense of internationalism. So those things were of concern in my house. 
Did you find that sort of your world bubble was a, a lot sort of smaller when you were younger? You were aware of what was around you rather than worldwide? Absolutely. But I think because of my mother's interests, I think that, you know, we did talk about what was happening in other parts of the world. Obviously, we're talking about the um, 60s and 70s, you know, so the anti-apartheid struggle. You know, I was a teenager when Allende was overthrown and you know, many people were fleeing from Chile. That's all the stuff that was happening in Central America. I was aware of that. I was very aware of that. And I went to university to study politics, politics, philosophy and economics. But it was the politics that was, you know, what? how does the world get like this? You know, what, what, what's, what drives all this stuff? So I liked history, but I was... I, I didn't want to study history as history. I wanted to be engaged in how does how does it change? Um, and I thought for quite a while that I'd be a politician, but then I changed my mind. Dare I ask why? Well, I think I think it's a bit hit and miss being a politician. You know, you can get elected or unelected. You could end up on the back benches for a long time. And I I like I like running things. I like getting things done. And so the idea of you know potentially being a backbencher for 20 or 30 years was just kind of not the best use of me. So that's that's why I put politics to one side. But, but you know, I'm obviously... You know, human rights are an amazingly... You know, and I use the word with a small p because it's not party political at all, but they're very political. You know, it's the, it's the nature of the relationship between the individual and the state. Your freedom of expression, your freedom to, to mobilise, to organise, your freedom not to be tortured, to have a fair trial, to have food, to, you know, these are very political relationships between the individual and the state. Politics is a big part of, of trying to affect change. So I like the fact that I understand how the political world operates. You know, I spent time thinking about it uh, and how you can influence some of that. But it's not just about that, because I think it is also how we change ourselves. I think when you're involved in human rights work, not just me, but people who, who, are, who spend their time thinking about this stuff and, and taking action and being passionate about, you know, whether it's refugee rights or women's rights or whatever, it affects how you are with everybody. It deepens your understanding of people and of yourself and of your ability to be a better person in the world. You've changed yourself in your attempts to change the world. But I do very firmly believe in that. It's interesting you said about changing yourself, because ultimately, with human rights, you want to be yourself, don't mm. you? Would you say that's less political and it's more about the fight that then gets political? I think social movements are vital to the way in which change happens, whether you want to describe them as political or not. So, you know, we campaign for laws to be enacted, but we also need campaign for a culture that allows those laws to be enacted. So I think that those two things are necessary. I've, seen, I've been in many parts of the world where the, the legislation looks great and then what's happening is terrible because the, the usual way of doing things is not being challenged. And I think, you know, for, for many of us who've been active in uh, the women's movement or LGBTI movement or others, you know, we know that, you know, it's, it, it needs more than a change of law. It needs to, it needs hearts and minds. And that, that's, that's how we do the work that we do as human rights workers, because it's engaging in conversation and discussion and winning those hearts and minds. It's also a job that influences others who are not part of your team, which is also extremely important, isn't it? How do you get that message across to them? In all sorts of different ways. So I think it absolutely depends on who you're talking to. 
But partly what we do as Amnesty is we tell stories, you know, and we tell the stories of individuals. So when you read any of our research, you'll always hear the voice of individual people in there about what's happening. And our Right for Rights campaign, which we've launched globally, is a classic campaign for Amnesty where we highlight what's happened to individual people uh, and ask other individual people to uh, make a noise about that and do something. And again and again, we see the impact that it has. So I think that is a, a key thing for us to do as Amnesty, to, to tell the story. I think what we're getting better at is saying how we think things should be, proposing solutions, just describing the problem, but also describing the solution. You know, one of the things that I'm very proud of in my time at Amnesty is being part of the campaign that we've had to have an international arms trade treaty. It was a 20-year campaign, started long before I arrived at Amnesty. I was with it for about its last 10 years of its life, where now there is, at UN level, and I was there when the treaty was agreed, there is an international arms trade treaty which governs how arms are, set, are sold across the world. Uh, but we're in that classic position now where we've got that treaty, but governments aren't obeying it, including our own. Um, so we need to get them to obey it. You're, you're never quite done. You know, you're always, There's always yeah. something else that has to happen. So it's a very good, amazingly beautiful treaty, um, but we've got to get governments now to implement it. And also bringing in those personal stories, like you mentioned before, so so powerful, isn't it, when you hear it from a person who's been affected. It's a shame that they are affected in any way. Telling a personal story connects with a heart, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. Definitely, I think, for all of us. So that, that's always at the heart of what we do. I search for your name on the internet. It obviously reveals that you also write a great deal about the atrocities in our world. Can I ask you, Kate, what was the most difficult one you've ever had to write about? That's, um, that's an interesting question. It's very difficult to select one, you know. Sometimes things feel more difficult because they're more avoidable. So just coming back from the Mexico-US border, that is a self-inflicted human rights crisis uh, inflicted by the wealthiest country in the world. If it chose to act with humanity, it wouldn't wouldn't be happening. And and you know what's happening to people is horrendous, literally horrendous. You know people are dying, and on the Mexican side of the borders, the the cartels are just you know the 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 organized the impact of organized crime is is absolutely chilling. It's, it's shocking that the the U.S. government's behaving in that way. But, you know, I have seen um, situations in, in many different parts of the world. I've been in a women's refuge in Kabul where, you know, I've seen the plight of young girls who have been horrendously abused. You know, and, and there, there, there is only, well, when I was there, there was only, there was only one refuge. And the, the prospects for, for I met a young girl who'd been raped and had a baby as a result of that and her options were to marry the rapist or to uh, leave, flee the country. It simply wasn't on her mind that there was anywhere else to go to. And I remember thinking, my goodness, can you imagine? Those are your options in life as a 16, 17-year-old. Yeah. And, and one of those options wasn't an option for her. Just simply, you know, to leave the country wasn't, wasn't something that she could do. I mean, she didn't know what that meant, let alone what that would look like. You get to the individual story, and I don't know what happened to that young woman, but I know that we're doing good work. You obviously were there at that moment in time. How does it affect you? How do you deal with it? How do you work that through? Mostly, I think it goes with being an activist. We're doing something about it. 
So I think if I was seeing the things that I see and hearing the stories that I hear and was just not doing anything about it, I think I wouldn't be able to bear it. But, you know, Amnesty does such amazing work that that's what makes it okay for me personally. That's for me. Um, I think as Amnesty we need to get better at how we support everybody that comes into, you know, into this world and deals with these issues. Because uh, I think it, it can take a toll. It can take a toll. Yeah. The, the Cooperative Bank has a very strong ethical policy, of course. Uh, how important do you think it is, especially nowadays, for other organisations to have something similar, to help out, to do something? I think it's vital. I mean, it's really, really important. And it's not strong enough and it's not extensive enough. You know, one of the areas that we do work on as Amnesty is corporates and human rights in the business world. Uh, so we do engage with that and we do try to improve how corporates behave. Which fight do you find personally is the one that resonates with you closest? Hmm. So no one of those, you can't narrow it down to one? No, I don't think I can narrow it down to one. There's, there's um, you know, one of the difficulties for us as Amnesty is prioritising, obviously, because we can't do everything. So we have a process as a movement of deciding where our focus is going. And we, many organisations, you know, we do our sort of strategic thinking and we have a plan for a five-year period and all those those sorts of things where we, where we focus ourselves. It is really important that we do that because otherwise we can spread ourselves too thinly and we could stop being international. You know, you could be seeing different things in different countries of the world you know, called Amnesty. And we, are, we are very committed to acting as one movement uh, on a global scale. Before I worked for Amnesty, I spent 15 years working with refugees. That is still an issue today, and it's still an issue that Amnesty works on. So, you know, somewhere in my heart, the refugee issue is, is very firmly connected. Having spent my, my previous job was a big service delivery organisation as well as campaigning. So it was children's homes and... Uh, shelters and housing, night shelters, soup kitchens, you know, it had all of those sorts of ways of providing services to people who are in really serious need. And actually, that's the other thing that, that when you ask me what, you know, how do I deal with um, all the difficult stuff that I see and hear about? The other side of it is you also meet some incredible people, you know, obviously, you know, you meet the people who are tackling this stuff, who are, you know, inspiring and wonderful and great colleagues and uh, doing brilliant stuff. So you're, you know, you're in a very privileged position too. Well, thank you so much for joining us uh, on the podcast. Just before we go, we hear a lot nowadays that people feel that they can't make a difference when it comes to human rights. What would you say to them to encourage them? Well, you see, I, I would say join Amnesty, wouldn't I? But I mean, and I do say that because it is, it is a, a, a very rare number of people that make a difference on their own. They do. Obviously, there are people like that. For most of us, uh, we make a difference by being part of something. And I think what Amnesty does is provide that kind of home for being part of where we can do that um, thinking and planning and do that research. And then we can organise with our members and support our members and supporters in their organising to affect change. So you can add your bit add your effort and know that it's part of a collective thing that can have impact. Otherwise, I think you just end up shouting at the television, you know, and I think that this, what Amnesty does is bring all of that expertise, but also just all of that ability for all of us in the way that we organise, talk to each other, talk to our MPs, talk to our local newspapers, raise money, all of those ways of contributing 
to a broader human rights struggle and still shout at the telly, exactly. The Cooperative Bank for people with purpose.